Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. I'm Lieutenant Douglas M. Hackett of the Office of Naval Intelligence. This briefing will cover two aspects of the Pueblo incident. The Pueblo seizure and the analysis of the North Korean evidence. We were so highly classified, nobody in the Navy knew who we were. When our message for help went out, Com 7th Fleet, whose area we were in, said, well, who the hell is the Pueblo? Ty Webb, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Mateblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, the podcast of usually three guys talking about stuff. But today it's just me, Gustav Monteblanc, with you. Ty ran off to Arizona to go spring training with the Rangers. Not sure if he's trying out, but hopefully he'll be back next week. And Heavy and I just could not get together. So you're stuck with me, Gustav, and you can always find me on Twitter at RealGustav. And you can email us at the podcast at CanYouHearMePod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on our website, canyouhearmepod.com, Instagram, canyouhearmepod, Snapchat, Pinterest, Reddit, we're all over the place. So if you want to talk to us, you can find us just about anywhere on social media. And if you want to tell Ty to come back, he's TyWeb3000. And of course, Heavy is Longmire Heavy on Twitter, so you can always uh, tell them to get back into, into the game. But today we're going to do a solo episode with just me, and it's going to be another history, kind of like the polonium poisoning, and it's going to be some more spy-related stuff, so I guess we'll get going. On a muddy river in the middle of Pyongyang, North Korea, moored just off the shore next to the Pyongyang Victorious War Museum, you'll find the USS Pueblo, the second oldest actively commissioned ship in the United States Navy. Of course, the only other older ship would be the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides. Now, how in the world is a USS active ship still on the books? How is it in the middle of North Korea? In the capital of North Korea, nonetheless. 350 tons of United States property. And it's actually a tourist attraction. You can go take tours there. Well, it's kind of a convoluted story. And of course, I'm going to add a whole lot more to it than the actual story. So you're probably used to that by now. We all know the basic story of the United States and who we are and how we got here, but most Americans don't know much about Korea other than what they learn watching MASH reruns. But the Korean Peninsula has been inhabited for a few hundred thousand years, and it's been a source of conflict for most of that time. Way too much detailed information to get into of the local history for the first few hundred thousand years. There were the Three Kingdoms and the North-South Divide way back when, even before what we have now. But instead, we're going to jump ahead and start off when the Chosun Dynasty is founded in 1392. That thing ran for a long time, all the way up to 1897. Now, they weren't always in full control of the peninsula, but they were the rulers, the Chosuns. 
Now, Chosun Dynasty brought about the advancement of the Korean civilization. It's pretty much the, the recognized innovators for everything they had, including the alphabet, government structure, and technological advancement on the Korean peninsula. But in the middle of the dynasty, Korea suffered several major, major invasions. So, if you can think about the map, if you can even find Korea on the map, it's in Southeast Asia, and you've got it sticking off as a true peninsula. Now, that opens it up for a couple of things. One, if you can defend it, it's easily isolated. And that will be a pattern that will exist throughout history. But also... Once it's taken over, you really have no place to go, and you're kind of stuck there. The Japanese invaded in the late 16th century. And then early in the 17th century, we had two different Manchu invasions. Now, the Manchu, they're going to be the Qing dynasty later on once they establish power over all of China. But at the time, they're in Manchuria, and they come straight down the peninsula. Japanese, of course, they came across the sea. So either way... If you've got a big enough force, you can take on the Korean Peninsula. The success of the Manchu invasions certainly helped the Manchurians establish the Qing Dynasty, like I mentioned. And officially, Korea was under the Qing Dynasty influence until 1894. Now, they were kind of like a protectorate with some influence from the Chinese, but they were still the Chosun Dynasty ruling over it, but under Chinese authority. Now, eventually, the Manchus left the peninsula and the Chosun dynasty went back to ruling Korea. Their experiences having both Japan and China take them over led the Chosuns toward an isolationist attitude. And you, you can't directly tie the isolationism of the 18th and 19th century to the isolationism of North Korea today. But it's certainly interesting to kind of draw some parallels and notice the tendencies that happened with the Chosun dynasty versus what's happening currently with the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Now, until the 19th century, most of Eastern Asia was pretty much isolated. Now, the Portuguese and the Spanish had made some inroads with trading and settlements, but overall, places like China, Japan, and Korea were closed to the Western powers. But with European colonialism at its zenith, the Western nations wanted to open trade with all of these new markets. They wanted the goods, but they also wanted to sell things, too. And they were willing to establish those markets one way or the other. The Western nations forced their way into China, primarily thanks to the First and Second Opium Wars with the English. And these countries established trade and military presences in the port cities along the coast of China, and then they negotiated for the most favorable treaties for themselves, which weren't really good for the Chinese people at all. And then you take the U.S. involvement as they send Commodore Perry in 1853 to Japan. He sails in with the threat of force and secures the Convention of Kanagawa in 1854, which opened up Japan to trade. Now, it's just a few hundred miles across a little bit of water between Korea and Japan. But still, Korea is isolated. And the Western powers, they can see it. They want it. But they know that there's trouble there. And just like the Western powers know Korea's there, Korea is hearing what the Western powers are doing in China and Japan. So they're hunkered down in their isolationist attitude. 
I'm always tickled when I start to research something that I already know a little bit about, and I find something, a fact, or an incident that I had no clue even existed. And that's what we're going to talk about now. In 1866, in the summer, the SS General Sherman, which was an American merchant paddle steamer, which was extremely well armed for reasons which are still disputed, it sails from China to Korea loaded with goods from a British trading company. With the intent to establish trade between the Western nations and the Korean Peninsula. Now, this is a long time before Teddy Roosevelt's walk softly and carry a big stick, but clearly this attitude is already in place. It's a, hey, we're going to come sell you stuff, and if you don't want to buy it, we're going to blow the hell out of you. Now, the Sherman's crew was primarily Asian, with the exception of the captain, the first mate, and on board was the ship's owner and a missionary who was acting as their interpreter. Now, when they first got there, the Sherman was initially told, hey, there'd be no trade with Korea, but we'll resupply you and we'll notify the higher-ups that, hey, you're here, but it's not going to happen. Well, if you've come that far and you're loaded for bear, you're really not going to take no for an answer. So the Sherman instead just steamed up the Taedong River toward Pyongyang. At one point, a Korean general came out to resupply them and convey the message of, hey, you're not welcome here. And they kind of escalated the situation by kidnapping him. The heavily armed Sherman starts firing on any boats that even attempt to get close to him. And they're even so chicken shit to start firing onto crowds on the shore. Now, Korea at the time is not an advanced military power. They do not have fancy cannons, they don't have ironclads, they don't have anything that's on the cutting edge of military technology in 1866. So here's this heavily armed ship, a steamer, it can go faster than anything that's on this river, and they're firing cannons into the crowd killing civilians. Well that didn't go very well. And the exact details of the skirmishes are not totally agreed upon because things are kind of sketchy back then. But eventually, after several days of running up and down this river, the Sherman runs aground. The Koreans sent burning boats at this point, filled full of salt, peter, and gunpowder, to try and catch the boat on fire. And the first couple are uh, not successful. But the third one, it does the trick. And the Sherman is ablaze... The crew are dying. Two of them escape, only to be beaten to death by the crowd. Now, an interesting point that North Korean revisionist history states that one of the leaders of the attack on the General Sherman was an ancestor of Kim Il-sung. And we'll talk about him in a moment. But just know that ancestor heritage and worship is very important in traditional Korean culture. So this is a major play to bolster Kim Il-sung's cult of personality and give him ties back to the heroic traditions of the Korean people. But we'll get back to Kim Il-sung later on. Now, during this period of isolationism, a few Catholic missionaries had made their way into Korea in the 16th and 17th century, and they had established a toehold. Now, while their numbers were never huge, it was a obvious Catholic minority grew in this traditionally shamanistic Korea. 
And for the most part, for several hundred years, the Christian believers and the missionaries were tolerated. Kind of a no harm, no foul situation. But in the 1800s, the Chosun dynasty began to persecute the Christian community. At first it was just shutting down churches and stuff, but then it starts imprisoning people, and then you start getting people actually getting beaten, and then eventually it escalates to the point where they're killing missionaries. And most of these missionaries happen to be French that are being put to death. Now it's hard to get numbers again, because this is back a long time ago in a area that was not real advanced at the time and there weren't a lot of press obviously but estimates go as high as 10,000 Christians were martyred with many more imprisoned and abused and actually a few years ago the Catholic Church actually beatified a couple of the uh, of the people that were martyred now at the time the second empire of France is a major world power with colonies all over the world, just like everybody else at the time, trying to get their piece of the pie. And they see the persecution of these French missionaries as a reason to go into to, uh, Korea and start some, start some trouble. You hurt my people, we're coming for you. Now this was kind of a unilateral decision by a commander on the Far East French squadron of the Navy. And he sent uh, a battleship, a couple of cruisers, and a few other smaller vessels with several hundred men, and they sailed to the Korean Peninsula. But they're faced with limited charts telling them what's safe to sail into because it's been so isolated. Nobody's really mapped it out. And these ships are big ships for the day. They're not little dinky uh, river craft. So while the General Sherman was able to get up and down the river, these French crafts cannot get in. So they decide to just focus their attack on Gangwa Island, which is off the coast of the peninsula. Traditionally, Gangwa Island happened to be where the Chosun leaders would run to, or, excuse me, would fall back to, to the fortifications on the island when there were invasions to the peninsula. So this is a storied area which has been fortified and maintained for years and years with multiple forts upon this island, and even a citadel. So while they had some initial success invading Gangwa Island, they failed on two occasions to actually land attacks on the mainland. So they're stuck out on this island. Got these big ships. They got a few hundred men. But the Korean defenders outnumbered them by the thousands. And with winter coming, the French finally withdrew. The entire thing only lasted six weeks but its impact was far greater than the short term and the limited damage they did because it led to an ever-increasing attitude towards isolation. So, 1866, we've had the General Sherman incident. We've had the French expedition. And Korea just shuts down to the rest of the world. They don't like what's happening around them, and they're not going to be any part of it. Post-Civil War, the United States was looking to expand its sphere of influence. And, just like those other European nations, was looking to open up new trade. This led to an increased presence of U.S. naval vessels all along the Asian coast. And in the interest of diplomatic relations, the U.S. sent an entire expedition to Korea. Now, again, going back to the old Teddy Roosevelt mantra of walk softly and carry a big stick, even though Teddy's not even on the scene yet, 
The expedition consisted of five warships and several hundred men. What could be more diplomatic than that? We come in peace, but we'll blow the hell out of you. Well, the initial contact was pretty peaceful. And although the U.S. forces did ask about what had happened to this, uh, the SS Sherman, and I doubt anybody really wanted to answer that question amongst the Koreans. But when the U.S. ships steamed ahead on the Han River, Korean shore batteries started to fire upon the ships. Now, I don't think there was that much damage. Again, the Korean military technology was fairly low level comparative to the day. And Rear Admiral Rogers demanded a formal apology. But when it wasn't received, the diplomatic expedition changed to what's known as a let's teach these guys a lesson expedition. Or, in more formal terms, a punitive expedition. Now, just like the French, this all went down on our old stomping grounds, the Gangwa Island. Now, this time, though, the U.S. forces seemed to know how to handle things better. Now, they were armed immensely better than the Korean defenders. The ships themselves were state-of-the-art as the U.S. is trying to become a world power, armed with naval guns and field artillery for the ground troops, 12-pound howitzers. The Navy at the time was using Remington rolling block rifles, chambered 50-70. Now, for those of you that aren't gun people, the 50 stands for the diameter of the bullet, which was .50 of an inch, so half an inch, and the 70 stood for 70 grains of black powder. Now, this is the same type of cartridge that buffalo hunters were using to decimate herds of buffalo. Millions of buffalo were being killed with this type of rifle on the plains, and that's what our sailors and marines are armed with. Now, the poor Koreans, they're armed with some primitive technology even by 1871 standards. They're armed with matchlock rifles. Now again, if you're not a gun person, that may not mean anything to you, but matchlock rifles were the prototypical first rifles, and that involved a muzzle-loading barrel, so you had to pour the powder down the barrel, ram a ball down it, and then you had to touch a lit fuse to a tiny little hole at the end of the barrel. And you had to hold this gun steady while you did that. Now, matchlocks usually at this point had some type of hinge mechanism where you just kind of tipped the match to the fuse to light the powder. But still, it requires a level of steady-handedness to even get a shot to go where you want to, let alone the incredibly slow rate of fire. And even though the Navy had these single-shot rifles... A rolling block, if you know what you're doing and you've got your bullets in your belt pouch, you can maintain a pretty fast rate of fire with that, especially fast compared to the matchlocks the Koreans had. They also had cannons, but again, these are a more primitive nature and they are not going to be able to get a high rate of fire or a late rate of accuracy. So the U.S. forces, they rolled through a couple of lightly defended forts on the island before they turned their attention toward the regrouped Korean defenders who had moved back and fallen into the Gwangsong garrison, which is basically a citadel. Going back hundreds of years, this is one of those places that the Chosun dynasty had used throughout history as one of their strongholds. 
Now, the U.S. artillery had been set these 12-pound howitzers up on the hills around the citadel, and then you had the naval guns from the warships bombarding the garrison to prepare for the ground attack, softening them up. And there were about 650 sailors and soldiers and marines in the expedition on the ground forces. And the signal's given, and 15 minutes later, the battle is over. With only three U.S. casualties versus over 240 Koreans that perished. And they captured many, many more. The first medals of honor, in fact, that were ever given for action on foreign soil were awarded to nine of the participants of the U.S.-Korean expedition. So this was a major milestone in uh, 19th century foreign relations. And I never even knew about this. But it would certainly not be the last time U.S. involvement happened upon the Korean soil. Well, the attack goes great. Hardly lost anybody. Massive victory, so they think. And the U.S. had hoped that they'd use these captured troops, and they had some high-level generals in these captured folks. They hoped to use them as leverage as they negotiated to open up trade with Korea and the Chosun dynasty. But the joke was on them. The Korean officials wanted nothing to do with these prisoners, and they wouldn't even negotiate. They told the U.S. delegates that the captured soldiers were cowards, and that the U.S. could keep them and do with them what they pleased. Well, if you can't negotiate with somebody to open up trade, and you've already beaten them, and that didn't do much good, the Asiatic fleet just kind of hung around for a month or so and finally pulled out and sailed back to China. Now, it's no surprise to me that after the French expedition and the U.S. expedition, that Korea just locked down for good for several years. Until the Japanese threatened them in 1876, and finally established a trade treaty with them, and then once they did that, that opened up the door for several other nations, including the United States. So in 1886, the U.S. and Korea signed a treaty of friendship and mutual protection, which lasted right up until the annexation of Korea by Japan in 1910. So we had a a decent little run there for about 24 years. But over that time, Korea was brought into the Japanese Empire very slowly through a mixture of subversion, pressure, the assassination of Queen Min, and ultimately the downfall of the Chosun Dynasty. Japan would rule and exploit Korea up until the end of World War II, often violently putting down any resistance They conducted medical experiments on Koreans. They uh, forced Korean women to work in brothels for Japanese military personnel and committed all sorts of atrocities. The end of World War II found the U.S. and the Russians actively trying to secure the Korean Peninsula. U.S. forces landed in the south, and the Russians pushed in from Manchuria, and they established themselves with Korean communists that had been operating in the north and acting as resistance to the Japanese. So we have the West versus the East, and eventually the 38th parallel is agreed upon as the demarcation line between the communists in the North and the anti-communist U.S.-supported regime in the South. Now at this point, the South's not what you would call quote-unquote democratic. They're just not communist, and that's good enough in this time of post-war, start of the Cold War era. Now, the Russians had several people that they were trying to groom and looking at to be their appointed leader of North Korea. 
That's where Kim Il-sung comes back into the picture. Now, we talked a little bit about him earlier when we were discussing the revisionist history about the General Sherman. But Kim Il-sung has a much bigger part. Now, you may be familiar with his son or his grandsons. Now, his son, of course, is Kim Jong-il, which was the villain in Team America. And then his grandson, Kim Jong-un, who's the current ruler of North Korea, he hangs out with Dennis Rodman and may or may not have had his brother Kim Jong-nam assassinated with nerve gas by a gal wearing an LOL shirt a couple of weeks ago. But let's get back to Kim Il-sung, the father of North Korea. Now, when he was born, again, Korea's under Japanese control. So he spends the 20s and the 30s and the first half of the 40s as an exile from Korea, involved in the Chinese Communist Party, resisting and ultimately fighting the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Eventually, he escapes the Soviet Union, where he's retrained, and he becomes a soldier in the Red Army. He's actively fighting in World War II. And with, with the Soviet push into what's now North Korea at the end of World War II, they needed to prop up somebody and get them into power that, first off, was Korean, <laughs> and secondly, that had a history with the Communist Party. Even though Kim Il-sung hadn't been in Korea in years, he was the best that they could pick. They had some other people they were kind of more interested in, but he was the one they settled on. Now, he was a war hero. He was a local boy, technically, even though he hadn't been there in a while. And he was actually a pretty good-looking dude, by all accounts, at the time. So he was just perfect for what they needed. But he had designs of his own on power and may eventually have outgrown his britches for what the Soviets wanted. But he was working under Soviet authority, and he was put in as the Communist Party head, and he goes and creates his own army, the Korean People's Army, which was made up mostly of guerrilla fighters who had fought in the preceding years, both prior to World War II and during World War II against the Japanese. So you had people that were passionate about Korea and about their own self-rule, and that had military experience, and more importantly, guerrilla fighting experience. Not fighting guerrillas, but fighting in a guerrilla nature. In 1948, the South declared themselves the Republic of South Korea, and the North, in turn, declares themselves as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And again, the boundary is still the 38th parallel, and for a while, it held firm. In 1950, with the Korean People's Army, Kim Il-sung crosses the 38th parallel. Now, at the time, some people thought the Soviets put him up to it, but things now are revealed. It's more thought that maybe he just went and did it on his own. And he starts the Korean War, which lasted a little over three years, but spawned MASH, the TV show that lasted 11 years. Go figure. Initially, the KPA pushed South Korean and U.S. forces all the way to the tip of the peninsula, to what became known as the Pusan Perimeter, before a UN-slash-US counterattack swung the momentum, with the KPA being pushed back north of Pyongyang. So it's like a, a pendulum swinging. And everything's kind of going on pretty good for the UN forces, until the Chinese intervention shifts the balance again, and the Allies are pushed back all the way again. But ultimately, they push back, and the front stabilizes, just about where it had been before the... KPA invasion had even happened, and that's where it's stood for the most part ever since. We're not exactly on the 38th parallel anymore, but it's pretty close. 
So there was an armistice that was signed by the North Koreans, the Chinese, and the U.S., but the South Koreans refused. They weren't ready to stop, but the war stopped anyway. And with the war over, Kim Il-sung consolidates his power and instilled his own kind of twisted version of communism with a distinctly Korean nationalistic flavor that he called Chuchi. I may not be pronouncing that right. It may be Chucha. I'm not sure. I don't speak Korean very well. That stressed independence over everything. And this independence was both isolationist, it was military strength, and it was self-sufficiency. And over time, his ties with the Soviets and Chinese would weaken, but they were never completely severed with either nation. Now, Khrushchev had made some efforts at times to back opposition to Kim Il-sung, but it never had been successful. And with his death and Leonid Brezhnev's assumption of power, the relations with the Soviets bettered over time. And that's where we finally get to the point of this whole story. I know it's taken a while. In 1966, Kim Il-sung begins what's known as the Korean DMZ conflict, or as some have called it, the Second Korean War, although it was primarily a series of low-level incidents instead of full-on war like the original Korean War. And Kim Il-sung starts all this mess by mobilizing eight infantry divisions right along the DMZ. The DMZ stands for Demilitarized Zone. And it's in Korea, it splits the entire peninsula roughly in half. It's about 140 miles long and about two and a half miles wide. And basically it's a no man's land with only patrols allowed to go in and observation posts with limited weaponry in those posts. And on each side of the DMZ, we have some of the most heavily armed borders in the world. Because once you get past the DMZ, you can do whatever the hell you want. Now, I mentioned earlier that originally they split North and South Korea along the 38th parallel. But after the armistice, that didn't hold exactly true to the way that the fronts had aligned. So now it's kind of a angle across the 38th parallel. But basically we're still in that general zone. So we have the DMZ heavily fortified on the outside of it. We have active patrols, both sides watching what the other one does. And because it's a two and a half mile wide strip across the country, everybody's watching what the other one's doing. So when the U.S. forces and the South Korean forces see eight infantry divisions rolling up to the edge of it, that gets everybody a little bit worried. And it's very obvious and then intelligence, flyovers, whatnot, they're showing that there's even eight more divisions beyond the DMZ for support if they're needed. So a huge mobilization of North Korean forces. And that's got the South and the U.S. forces worried. So you have joint U.S. and Republic of Korea forces man that frontier with two U.S. divisions just north of Seoul and then nine Republic of Korea divisions on the other sides of them split. The North Korean forces, they're being supplied by the Chinese and the Soviets, so their equipment's pretty top-notch for the time. Unfortunately, with the escalation of the Vietnam War, the U.S. forces are not getting the cream of the crop when it comes to equipment. Instead of M16s, the U.S. troops are armed with M14s, although I'm not saying that's an inferior weapon by any chance. 
They don't have a whole lot of helicopters. They don't have a lot of artillery. They don't have a lot of mechanized infantry or tanks. So they are not geared for a full-scale conflict. And the poor Republic of Korea Army, they're using equipment that's 15 years old from the original Korean War. So instead of even having M14s, they've got M1 Garands, which is still a great rifle, but it's no match for an AK-47 when it comes to rate of fire. Now, the U.S. did have nukes on the ground violating the armistice, so we had that in our back pocket. But luckily, a full-scale conflict between the two sides never came to be. Instead, Kim Il-sung took a play from his time backfighting the Japanese during the Resistance era and waged a campaign of infiltration and guerrilla warfare against the North, focusing on the ROK units and generally leaving the U.S. divisions in the middle alone. North Korean saboteurs would go across the DMZ, usually at night, cut through the wire, and cause all kind of havoc in uh, South Korea. North Korean saboteurs had killed over 40 Republic of Korea soldiers and civilians in raids across the DMZ by the end of 1966. Now, with the increased patrols, skirmishes were occurring within the DMZ, where there were some U.S. casualties as well, as they were running into these North Korean raiding parties and firefights would ensue. The South Koreans, they're not... You know, they're not standing idle. They're making some infiltrations into North Korea as well on several occasions, and they're killing a number of KPA soldiers while they make incursions. I don't have any numbers on how many, they, how much damage they did, but the DMZ at this point is the Wild West. Everybody's going across it. Now, officially the U.S. wasn't, but I don't know if that's the case or not. In 1966, we've got all this activity, and we've got all kinds of infiltrations happening. And it just gets worse in 67 on both sides. We're both north and south are sending people over to cause trouble. And a ramped up counterinsurgency plan from the joint U.S. and South Korean forces tries to cut down on the North Koreans getting across. Now, the North Koreans' response to that is to form Unit 124 with the sole purpose of infiltration. Unit 124 is basically the equivalent of the SEALs or the Spetsnaz or the SAS. These guys are special forces and their entire purpose was to cross into South Korea and cause mayhem. Now from what I've gathered about it, it was only for officers. No enlisted men at all within Unit 124. You had to have a proven track record of service. I'm not sure how many years, but you couldn't just be a recruit. And you had to have intense physical training, intense psychological training, hand-to-hand combat training. I've read some really odd things that you had to sleep on dead bodies and other things to toughen you up. But these guys were the best of the best. In January 1968, a Unit 124 team launches their most ambitious mission up to that point. Now, Some reports that I read said that Unit 124 was organized on four-man teams. That then, depending on what the mission was, you would have always multiples of four for whatever the mission was. But according to the official record, this incursion on January 1968 had 31 men. 
And that doesn't match the four-team structure that I read about. So I'm not real sure who to believe. But anyway, 31 men, according to the official documentation, crossed over the DMZ, passed U.S. forces north of Seoul, and they set up a base camp. Now, amazingly enough, they were accidentally discovered by four South Korean brothers who were out in the hills gathering firewood, and they stumbled upon this infiltrator camp. So the young men were captured by sentries, and instead of detaining them or even killing them, the squad did a field indoctrination to teach the youth about the glory of Kim Il-sung and his vision for a unified Korea. Now, this is the craziest thing in this story. After all, the North Korean objection was the fall of the South Korean government and the reunification with Kim Il-sung as the glorious leader of a single unified Korea. So instead of taking care of the business, these guys want to win hearts and minds of these four kids, teenagers, wandering around the hills picking up dead wood. And much to the credit of these kids, they were smart enough to say, hey, that sounds great, we're communists now. And the Unit 124 guys let them go. And the kids ran back to their family, and the authorities were notified. So now we've got a massive manhunt, U.S. and Korean forces looking for this Unit 124 group. The Unit 124 guys managed to evade the South Korean and U.S. forces for several days before they arrived at their objective on January 21st. Their mission was to attack the Blue House. Now, the Blue House is basically the Korean version of the White House. That's the presidential palace for the South Korean government. And they wanted to infiltrate the Blue House and kill President Park Chung-hee. And according to some accounts, for two years the team had trained and prepared for this mission, including running through the assault multiple times on a full-scale model of the Blue House. So somewhere out in the Korean woods, they had built another Blue House for these guys to run through and get their timing down and get their moves down perfect. So two years, that's what they're planning on. And it almost worked. They changed into South Korean military uniforms, and they made it all the way within about 100 yards of the Blue House. Ironically, they were posing as a counterinsurgency unit returning from a patrol. And around 10 p.m. as they were approaching the Blue House, a local police chief, who had been alerted to the presence of this infiltration, he stops them just to ask them, you know, who they are and where they're going. And the more he asks questions, the more suspicious he gets... He pulls his pistol, and the commandos open fire on him, start throwing grenades, start shooting up the place, just causing holy hell. Well, there's other police forces close. There's other military forces obviously close to the presidential palace, so it turns into a a total battle. And over the night, a running battle ensues throughout the streets as Unit 124 abandons their mission. By the next morning there were 92 Southern Korean casualties, including 24 people, just civilians, on a bus that happened to roll up in the middle of this firefight. Wrong place, wrong time, unfortunately. And there were four more South Korean casualties and four U.S. servicemen killed in the hunt for the Unit 124 squad before they finally rounded them up. Now, as I mentioned, the official number is 31 North Koreans in this infiltration. 29 of them were killed during the fight, one was captured, and one escaped. 
But I can't help but wonder if there was a number 32 out there that either perished along the way getting there or whether or not he just escaped back. So needless to say, U.S. and South Korea were wound up tight on January 22nd. The U.N. called for a military armistice commission meeting on the 23rd between South Korea and North Korea to discuss the raid, which obviously would have been an armistice violation. The North Koreans asked for a postponement till the 24th, because why wouldn't you try to stall? There's no doubt who caused this, so it's in North Korea's best interest to drag it out as long as they can. Now, as a footnote, January 22nd, 1968 also has some significance in U.S. history, because that was the first day of the Battle of Khe Sanh in, in Vietnam. Now, we'd already mentioned how the Vietnam War was in full escalation, and the bulk of U.S. military resources and attentions were focused in Vietnam, not the Korean Peninsula. Although, there's an awful lot going on just in that whole neck of the woods. The 60s saw a massive increase in U.S. naval activity in Southeast Asia. You had the Vietnam War escalating. We had China aiding the North Vietnamese. We had the North Koreans working actively against the South Koreans. And to top it all off, we've got Soviet naval operations taking place in the area. So with all of that activity in China, Vietnam, and North Korea, naval intelligence gathering was an absolute priority. The U.S. Navy had two Banner-class intelligence gathering ships working out of Yokosuka, Japan. The USS Banner and the USS Pueblo were former freighters built during World War II that had been retrofitted as spy ships. These are old freighters. At this point, they're 25 years old, they're 177 feet long, they can't even go a full 13 knots, which if you turn that into miles per hour, that's about 14 and a half miles per hour. Their only armament, officially, were a couple of M2 Browning 50 caliber machine guns, and then whatever small arms the crew might have, so pistols, M14s, M16s, whatever. These are not warships by the definition of a combat ship. They did not have a large crew, only about 81 officers and sailors. And by my definition of a warship, like I said, that's not what they are. These were literally old slow freighters that had been filled full of intelligence gathering equipment. Now, the USS Pueblo went out and depending upon who you listen to, it was either to just shake out the equipment and see, or it was actually to go and gather intelligence. But either way, the Pueblo left Japan and headed towards Vladivostok and North Korea. The skipper of the Pueblo was Commander Lloyd Booker, and his executive officer was Lieutenant Ed Murphy. Like I said, if you listen to some people, like Lieutenant Murphy, according to Lieutenant Murphy, just to test out the equipment, was not to engage and if they were compromised, to head back to port. Murphy says they left port without TNT or thermite. Now, why that's important is because if they did get compromised, if they did get boarded, there's no way to destroy the equipment or how to scuttle the ship to sink it. Now, thermite is a metal oxide that you add some other things to it, and when it's lit, it will basically fuse metal. So sometimes you can weld with thermite or you could burn a whole cryptography machine, just turn it into slag with thermite placed. It doesn't explode. 
It just lights and creates this exothermic reaction that just melts steel. Murphy also claims that Bucher was negligent with the security of the ship by allowing local girls on board while they were in port. The Pueblo left Japan and then began to work its way up the Korean eastern coast, moving northward, and, according to U.S. reports, was always in international waters. On January the 22nd, two North Korean fishing boats spotted the Pueblo. They were just civilian fishing boats doing their thing, and there was no doubt that they saw the Pueblo, and then they left. But then they came back later with more people on board, and people that were obviously photographing the Pueblo. Yet, according to Murphy, the Pueblo did not leave the area, even though the sh- fishing boats left once more. On the 23rd, a Soviet-made North Korean subchaser approaches the Pueblo. And the- Unlike the Pueblo, this is a warship. She's much faster. She's armed with a 57-millimeter deck cannon and multiple machine guns, and her crew is trained in warfare. The Pueblo, according to the naval official documentary that they put out in 68, was conducting civilian hydrography studies, and they were carrying two civilian oceanographers to help keep that facade up. According to Murphy, Buker flagged, thank you for your consideration, and we are leaving the area. And then a couple of torpedo boats showed up as well as an additional subchaser on the horizon. Now, at this point, the 50 cal machine gun that the Pueblo was armed with was covered in a tarp, and all the ammunition was stored below decks. And according to Murphy, the crew wasn't even trained on how to operate the machine gun. This left the Pueblo effectively only manned with small arms against multiple war vessels. Now... This is where the story starts to get a little choppy. So depending upon if you're listening to Murphy or Buker, there's some deviation in the story. And this is a consistent pattern throughout the rest of the tale. But according to all accounts, the Pueblo did try to evade a little bit, and they were in contact with Pacific Command. But as they try to evade the North Korean vessels, which were considerably faster, they they can't stay away from them, and the chase doesn't last long. The subchasers were armed with those 57-millimeter cannons that I mentioned, and they opened up a fire on the Pueblo. And about that time, two Soviet-made MiG jets arrive on the scene circling over as well. So the Pueblo, a relatively unarmed ship, is outnumbered and outgunned by all accounts. So without ever even firing a shot, under fire and surrounded, the Pueblo surrenders. The North Koreans closed in on the Pueblo, and they signaled to her to follow them to the Wonsan Harbor. One report I read from the U.S. Naval Institute states that Buker crawled along at a very slow pace of four knots, trying to give his men time to destroy sensitive material the best they could, even though they didn't have that TNT or that thermite. But the North Koreans began firing upon them again, and ultimately ten crew members were wounded, including the skipper, Commander Buker, and one sailor, Dwayne Hodges, was actually killed due to a hit from one of the 57mm cannons. Now, in an interview that I saw, Buker claims that he told the medic to give wounded Hodges extra morphine, even though it might kill him because he knew he wasn't going to make it and it was going to put him out of his misery. 
with the full surrender, with the second bombardment, the Pueblo's done for. Boarding party boards, they blindfold the crew, they beat them, they kick them, they hit them with rifle butts, and then Korean sailors pilot the Pueblo into the port of Wonsan. Then the crews paraded down the streets of Wonsan and loaded onto a train where they're transported to a series of prisoner war camps and ultimately to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. And again, they're beaten all along the way. They're tortured psychologically. They're undernourished. They are in a living hell as a prisoner in North Korea. But for the North Koreans, but for the North Koreans, this is an absolute windfall, even with the risk of it starting World War III. As I mentioned earlier, Khrushchev had grown weary of North Korea and Kim Il-sung's behavior. And then, with the Sino-Soviet split caused by the degradation of relations between Khrushchev and Mao Zedong, the North Koreans were basically left unaligned. They still had relations with both the Soviets and the Chinese, but Khrushchev had shunned Stalinist policies and began to work to, to disassemble the cult of personality that Stalin had cultivated. Meanwhile, Mao's actively constructing his own cult of personality and implementing the Great Leap Forward. And the split continued even after Khrushchev's death and Brezhnev had taken over. Meanwhile, we've got Kim Il-sung, whose whole nation's kind of founded on Stalinism, even though he's twisted it again to his own thing. And he's certainly created his own cult of personality. So he fits kind of somewhere in between. But Kim Il-sung wasn't stupid. And he knew that the Soviets would reward him for such a treasure trove of intelligence equipment, including cryptography keys and other classified information that the Soviets would love to get their hands on. In hindsight, we now see that it would all gel together with the secrets that John Walker, a naval intelligence warrant officer, had been feeding to the Soviets starting around 1968. So with this combination of newly acquired U.S. naval intelligence, the Soviets would have an edge on the U.S. naval operations that we may never fully comprehend. Secondly, this was a huge public relations opportunity for North Korea. Members of the U.S. Imperialist Armed Special Pueblo, which was captured while conducting espionage and hostile acts deep in the territorial waters of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. They claimed that the Pueblo was within their territorial water, a boundary which at the time was 12 nautical miles. They'd also had the feather in their hat of capturing a Navy ship from the great imperial aggressor. This elevated North Korea's esteem with the other unaligned communist nations and many third world nations where the U.S. was not very popular at the time. And third, do you remember how we talked about the U.N. had called for an armistice conference to discuss the North Korean infiltration and attack on the Blue House? And just by coincidence, the North Koreans had managed to postpone the meeting by a couple of days? Now the U.S. wasn't able to focus purely on the Blue House attack. They had to spend much of the conference having to defend themselves on claims of spying and a maritime territorial boundary dispute. Which is silly considering who wasn't spying on each other back then, or today for that matter. The North Koreans milked the Pueblo crew for propaganda for all it's worth, and still continue to do so to a slightly lesser extent to this day. In the early stages of their captivity, the crew were photographed a great deal. The North Koreans distributed the photos to the outside world. Now, somewhere along the way, someone in the crew had the great idea 
to flip off the camera when they were being photographed. The guards noticed and asked what the hand sign meant. A quick-thinking sailor told him that was a Hawaiian good luck sign. Well, that lasted for a while, and several pictures of the Pueblo sailors were sent out with the crew shooting the bird, usually discreetly, somehow, but still obvious to any American that would see the pictures. But at some point, the jig was up, and someone on the North Korean side found out what it really meant. The men were punished, beaten, food withheld, psychologically tortured, and the future photos were more staged. Never again was anyone allowed to flip off the cameraman. Now, an interesting note in the Soviet military, the second-in-command was called the political officer. And the political officer was the representative of the Communist Party and used to make sure the military stayed in line with the party. Now, the North Korean military was modeled on the Red Army, so they seemed to think that the executive officer in the U.S. Navy was functionally the same as their political officer. According to Lieutenant Murphy, that put additional pressure on him for information and influence on the crew. Now, I would point out that Murphy was also the navigator, so they had to know that. So that's pro- that might be some of this where this additional information, but it does seem to hold up in a few other things that are brought to uh, attention. Because they thought Murphy had more power than he actually did, thinking he was a political officer, they put his cell next to the torture room. And Murphy has stated that he had to hear all of his crew beaten and tortured all hours of the day. He also says that he was threatened that if anything went wrong, that he would never be released. So he had this added pressure, according to him, that even the captain didn't have. I grew up watching old war movies with my dad, and I always remember two things from those films. One was never give up the ship, and the other was name, rank, and serial number. Now, Buker probably saw a lot of those movies when they were first run, and he was a career naval officer, so he had to have always heard these two things. But for the sake of his men's well-being, he surrendered his ship, and he read North Korean prepared statements saying that the Pueblo was on a spy mission and had violated North Korean territory. We, the officers, crew, and civilian oceanographers of the USS Pueblo, are writing you jointly to explain the fact that those points we consider pertinent to our capture. Specifically, that we intruded into the territorial waters of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and committed hostile acts and sincerely apologizes for these acts and gives assurance that they will not be repeated. Look, i got to keep it real. I've never been responsible for 83 men's lives, and I've never been in charge of an invaluable security information in the middle of the Cold War. But Buker was, and he made the decision to try and save his men by at least cooperating by reading the propaganda statements for the North Korean cameras. The North Koreans threatened to kill his crew one by one if he didn't cooperate. And in his written confession, he included double talk and sly jabs at the North Koreans, which I don't think were ever picked up on. While the 82 surviving members of the USS Pueblo crew were stuck in Pyongyang, the U.S. is actively trying to negotiate with North Korea, usually without the South Koreans, much to their dismay. And the reason this was worrisome to the South Korean allies was because they weren't sure what lengths the U.S. would go to get their sailors back and the ROK was still rightly agitated over the Blue House attack. I mean, literally, they tried to come assassinate their president, and almost succeeded. 
After months of fruitless negotiations, the U.S. government issued an apology. They had to write a written admission that they were spying and not truly doing oceanography as they'd stated. And they had to promise not to spy in the future. Now, that's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. This is like a punishment that you give your kids. But that's what the North Koreans wanted. Because at this point, they had gotten what they'd wanted. They had increased their esteem in the world. They had supplied the Soviets with invaluable intelligence information, which certainly went a long way with their Soviet relations. They had given the U.S. a black eye, and they had this huge propaganda machine pumping out all kinds of Pueblo-related fun facts. So at this point, sure, we'll take your admission and your apology. That's great. So the North Koreans released their prisoners one by one and sent them across the Bridge of No Return. I think that's the greatest name for a bridge in the world, by the way. The crew had been captive almost 11 months to the day. They were weak, skinny, emotionally fragile, and one by one, they went across the Bridge of No Return, led first by Commander Bucher, and true to the North Korean threat against the perceived political officer, they held Lieutenant Murphy back to the very end and make sure that nothing went wrong, and he was released last. As soon as they got the guys back, the U.S. verbally retracted the apology, admission of guilt, and their promise not to spy anymore against North Korea, and what may be the greatest just kidding or psych in the 20th century. Buker and Murphy would disagree about the incident for the rest of their lives, with both of them writing extensive books about the USS Pueblo. Murphy's attitude towards Buker's surrender is very disdainful, and I don't get the impression that they had a very good relationship before the incident, and they certainly don't seem to have gotten along after the ship was captured. Now, I will make a note that many of the crew members that I've seen interviews think speak very highly of Buker and what he did for the crew to save them. So I think there's a different perspective depending upon where in the chain of command of the Pueblo you were at. Buker and Murphy both agree that they had been told by the Pacific Command that they were on their own and not to engage, and if they were compromised, they should immediately leave the area. Well, if there had been a war on, I I guess I'm sure we would have died. I would have done that. But there's no war there, and I was told specifically when I left port there by Admiral Johnson, he said, now look, Buker, he says, you're not a damn cowboy out there. I don't want you starting World War III. I said, Admiral, I ain't starting your war for you. Murphy maintains that they were compromised before they even ever left port because he says that Buker was bringing bar girls on board and into sensitive areas of the ship. But even if that isn't true, they were undoubtedly compromised by the two fishing boats identified as Rice Paddy 1 and Rice Paddy 2 that spotted them on the 22nd. And no matter how you cut it, the Pueblo should have left the Korean coast upon the initial contact with these two civilian fishing boats. But what about the negligence of the Pacific Command sending an incredibly valuable asset from an intelligence standpoint, unsupported, filled full of surveillance equipment and cryptology information? There were no planes ready from the bases in Japan to offer support, and it would have taken a couple of hours to get them into the air. The USS Enterprise Carrier Group was a little over 500 miles south, and its aircraft weren't even configured for any air-to-surface engagements at the time the Pueblo incident happened. Despite being told air support was on its way, the Pueblo was left alone and for all practical purposes unarmed in a severely hostile area. After the Pueblo crew were released and repatriated, 
the Navy wanted to stick the blame on someone. After all, the North Koreans have got their ship. Finally, after the Pueblo crew were released and repatriated, the Navy wanted to stick the blame on someone. After all, they're missing a ship. A court of inquiry was set up, and the testimonies were taken of every officer and every crewman. Upon completion, the court of inquiry recommended a general court-martial for Commander Buker and Lieutenant Steve Harris, who was in charge of the quote-unquote research department, for not destroying the equipment and data. Lieutenant Murphy was recommended for a letter of admonition. But, you know, in the hindsight, the more you look at the Pueblo incident, the clearer to me it becomes that the higher-ups in the chain of command above the Pueblo were partly responsible for the outcome. Ultimately, citing that the crew had suffered enough under captivity, Secretary of the Navy, John Chaffee, dismissed the Court of Inquiry's recommendations and put the whole incident to rest. Now, Chaffee certainly could have believed that, but I have to wonder if it also had the effect of taking a hot issue out of the public eye and protecting the Pacific Command from any further scrutiny. After all, the Vietnam War was in more and more unpopular every day, and the last thing you want is a high-profile court-martial against sailors who had just been freed from almost a year of communist captivity. Murphy left the Navy soon after, but Buker continued to serve until his retirement, and Commander Buker always maintained that he followed his orders not to engage in conflict. He also believed that the lives of his crew were more valuable than the ship and its classified information and equipment. With the lack of armament and no destructive TNT or thermite on board to destroy the classified assets, I'm not sure that Buker did the wrong thing as far as his crew was concerned. I do think that his negligence to head out further to sea after the initial contact with the fishing boats Rice Paddy 1 and Rice Paddy 2 could have averted the entire incident. I also think that Pacific Fleet Command's lack of air support or closer warships to support the Pueblo also could have de-escalated the situation. Now, you know how I like to kind of tie things together. And to go back to one of our history fun facts earlier, the Pueblo was moored for a while, supposedly along the same stretch of the Taedong River where the General Sherman had ran aground and was destroyed by the fireboats. But... Over the years, the Pueblo was looking a little rough, so in 2013, she was refurbished and moved to a spot on the river adjacent to Pyongyang Victorious War Museum, where to this day you can take a guided tour that will give you the official North Korean version of the story with detailed charts showing how the Pueblo came much closer to shore than the U.S. ever admitted. Some tourists have posted clips on YouTube of one of the tours being conducted in English. I tried to pull audio from it, but the... Tour guide's level is really low, and the audio quality is not that great. But if you want to see it, I found it entertaining, so you might too. On a positive note, in 1989, thanks to Buker's insistence, the crew were finally awarded the Prisoner of War medals that they deserved in recognition of their ordeal and captivity in North Korea. At the time, the Pueblo incident was a huge deal. It's fallen out of our general consciousness because so much else was going on in 1968. But it literally was a very hot point in the Cold War. But for now, it's mostly forgotten except by a few history geeks. So hopefully you learned a little bit today. As always, you can email us at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com. You can tweet me at realgustav or 
Can You Hear Me pod, and I'd love to hear back from you and hear what you have to say about this. Let me know if there's any topics you'd like to hear me delve into. But next week we'll be back with full tie and heavy, I hope, and we'll be back to our normal shenanigans. I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. The document which I am going to sign was prepared by the North Koreans. I will sign the document to free the crew and only to free the crew. I think particularly for the crew of courage and great service to our country. And you? I served as well as I could, too. I wasn't, I never, I'm not ashamed of anything I did. And world-class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Saldy. Good night from Dallas, Texas.